Hello and welcome to the FT Advisor podcast, the weekly podcast series brought to you by FT Advisor. Each week we'll be joined by guests from the financial services world to discuss the most pressing industry issues. I'm Amy Austin, Senior Reporter at FT Advisor, and today I will be discussing the government's social care plans with Steve Webb, former Pensions Minister and partner at LCP, and Tony Mood, Divisional Director for Tax and Technical Support at St James's Place. Welcome to you both and thank you for joining us. The government's policy will place a 1.25% increase on national insurance contributions alongside a 1.25% dividend tax in order to pay for a social care cost cap. This pan cap for people entering care from October 2023 will mean any care costs over £86,000 will be covered by the government provided the individual's asset sits under £100,000. So for both of you, I thought we could just discuss, start by, you know, discussing what what were your initial thoughts on the plan? Steve, I don't know if you want to start. I think for me, a cap is long overdue. I was in government when Sir Andrew Dilnot did the famous Dilnot report, which is 10 years ago now, shockingly. And he pointed out that the risk of what they call catastrophic end-of-life care costs is one that's a bit of a lottery. You know, I could get knocked over by a bus and have zero care costs, or I could have something awful like dementia and be seven years in a care home and have six-figure care costs. And any other terrible risk like that, we pool. You know, we, we have the NHS to pool uh, health risk. We have house insurance and car insurance. You know, we pool those risks, and this is the one that we don't. So I think, in principle, a lifetime cap is a good thing. I don't think it solves all the problems of the social care system, and it isn't quite what it seems, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But the principle of a lifetime cap, I think, is a good one. Sean, what about you, Tony? Um, I think the fact that they have at last come out and said, we are going to do something, this is an area that needs to be addressed, and they have put plans in place. That has to be a positive. You know, we have been waiting since the Royal Commission back in 1998 for someone to do something. So from that perspective, it's, it's a, a step forward. Um, unlike Steve, I, I'm not a fan of um, the, the Dilnot approach. Um, I think it's overly complex um, and it will, it, will add, it will add to the difficulties that people face in working out actually what their care costs will be. That, that being said, um, the majority of the costs that I think that are being raised from the money that you initially talked about is actually going to go quite clearly to reducing the personal contributions that people will make. So that has to be positive as well. Sure. And do you think, because I've heard kind of going around that with financial advisors, they'll now be able to kind of help these people that are kind of nearing this 100 thousand k you know like floor um i think as they called it um to try and get like you know find their care their social care costs so do you think that the value of financial planning has been intensified in this sense for these kind of people um if i'll I'll go first i'm sure steve's got his own views um the most important thing actually is that this will this will bring the whole issue to people's consciousness i mean we all know that you know, a significant percentage, in fact, the majority of people are under the mistaken belief that actually the state will provide. But of course, the state provides um, free care um, for a hospital. Uh, that's the NHS. Um, social care, ever since the introduction of the NHS back in 1948, has always been 
of responsibility effectively a local authority and it's always been means tested. So if nothing else, this will raise um, people's awareness that this is something they should be talking about and planning for. And I think, Amy, there's an awful lot for people to get their head around where financial advice can be incredibly valuable, subject to the caveat that there aren't necessarily actually financial products quite right yet to fit this new world. So I think we perhaps talk about that in a moment. But in terms of what you need to understand, so we've got this 86,000 lifetime cap, which is, of course, different to the floor, which is another part of the system. So the cap is saying in two years time, in theory, the clock will start running. So you could have spent a fortune on care costs in the past. That's all wiped. That's all forgotten. So you'll need everybody to have a local authority assessment of need because they won't pay you just what you fancy. They won't just pay you what you've spent. They'll pay you what they think you needed to have spent. So even self-funders who've gone nowhere near the local authority until now will have to contact the local authority, get an assessment. And let's suppose they go for high, middle and low for the sake of argument. You know, you've got high social care costs, medium or low. And here's a tariff, so many pounds a week for low, so many for middle, so many for high. So everybody will have to be assessed. I don't believe local government will get that done in the next two years personally. So I think it won't start on time. But let's suppose it does. You then rack up week by week, month by month, a tariff income against this total. Not what you've actually spent, but a social care tariff. So that's not social care spending beyond what they think you need. And it's not your hotel board and lodging costs either. So it's only part of the bill. And I think it will be years and years and years before anybody actually hits 86,000 based on those limits. So two years before it starts, years more to run up the bill, not covering all of your costs. So but planning ahead, you know, will you hit this? Do you, you know, could there be an insurance product so that you don't risk 86,000, you only risk 20,000 or something, you know? So that's a, a very ripe area. And I think the other one, as Tony says, is, is the floor, the 100,000 floor that you mentioned, Amy, which is new. So we've had this 23,250 absolute cutoff. If you've got more than that, you get no help, period, nothing else matters. That's now gone up. But again, if you've got 80 odd thousand quid, they don't just say, well, that's fine, you're under 100. They say, yes, but we're going to assume you get an income from that 80,000. And they assume a very aggressive rate of return, you know, one pound of income per week per 250 of capital. Well, that's an interest rate of over 20%. And you need a darn good advisor to get that rate of return. So, you know, there's so many moving parts and just understanding how it will affect the individual client, how they can plan for it, how to avoid making decisions that will cost them in the long run. Very ripe area, I feel. I, I, I absolutely agree. And Steve very articulately there described actually the difficulties with coming up with an insurance product. I mean, in theory, if you try to actually outline what the maximum an individual will actually pay, you could argue that, well, that's where insurance could fit in. The difficulty is that it, it will not be £86,000 because £86,000 represents actually the costs of care. There are all sorts of other costs that people will incur. That always assumes that the individual is always assessed as the way local authorities currently work or based on a substantial care need. In all likelihood, someone's actual total care costs will be considerably higher than £86,000. And of course, you've got also the difference between people who are, let's say, in domiciliary care, where you could argue that well, most of the care costs there are going to be uh, personal care, between or living carer, where it will be different, or residential or nursing care. Um, therefore, you're going to have a whole range of potential costs. So this idea of 86,000 is the one that you could get an insurance company to create policies for, actually is 
well, it fundamentally won't be the number. Um, and that's where the difficulty is going to come because, you know, the FCA will quite rightly say, well, if you're going to sell an insurance product, you've got to justify what sum assured that that individual is going to be paying premiums for. Calculating that sum assured will be immensely complicated. I think, though, just, Amy, if I just may very briefly add to that, it is, I take all of those points, except that there is now going to be an official definition and an account and a basis for adding to that account. So at the moment, without an insurance policy, that account tots up to 86,000 and then the state cuts in. An insurance company could now say, well, we're not exposed to tail risk. We're not exposed to someone being in a care home for 20 years kind of thing. The government's dealt with that. We will sell a policy. I think a lump sum policy would be attractive. So you retire, you take your pension lump sum. Would you put, let's say, 20,000 out of your lump sum to cover 60,000 of social care costs. So that instead of cutting off at 86,000, you cut off at 26,000 just to pick a random number. Now, I might buy that policy. I don't want to hand over 20,000 quid out of my pension lump sum, but nor do I want to risk 60,000 quid of the value of my home going for care costs. So that's a policy that might work. And at least there is then an un ambiguous government definition of what we're counting when the threshold threshold's been triggered because the government will need those definitions. So all that work is now being done anyway. So maybe that makes it easier to design an insurance policy. Yeah, um, I, I'm not, I know you took the figure of 26,000 as a random number. I think uh, the reality is if it was that low, people would say, do you know what? I can probably find that sort of, that sort of amount. And, um, or I'm not going to take out insurance policy for that amount. Um, I think you're absolutely right about the tail risk. Um, but I think we need to start looking at this in, in a much broader range. I think the, the idea that long-term care insurance is the only solution, um, that can't be right. We, we've got to actually get people to start talking about um, this whole idea of long-term care planning, actually in much the same way as we do about every other aspect of financial planning, you know, retirement planning, investment planning, it just needs to be the norm. And right now, it's very rarely talked about in financial services. There aren't that many advisors who specialise in care. And, and I think that's what we need to change as well. And I think other products will be developed. Um, I, I mean, I'm interested, I know Steve is obviously an ex-pensions minister, but I think Pensions have a potentially a great place to pay here as well if we can get the government to make some tweaks to pensions legislation. Sure, and Steve, what other products do you think we could see emerging? Because I know the government said that is working with the industry on this. So hopefully, they, you know, they're getting the insight and input that they need to come up with something that will go, you know, the mile. Yes, and I think there's always, I mean, I, I used to work for Royal London and was promoting this kind of idea when I worked for Royal London. And one thing I learned from working inside the industry is just the lead time on a brand new financial product. It's not that, you know, the government says something a bit vague one week and three weeks later, there's a new product launched, you know, um, firms have got a a big pipeline of stuff they're working on, much more kind of mainstream products. So actually doing a brand new product, testing it, getting the regulatory approvals, getting the IT systems, thinking about marketing channels and so on is, is a work of years. So I don't think there'll be any new products, you know, imminently. But the sooner the government gives clarity, this was always the challenge. You know, we still don't really know what's in, what's out, when it will start, how it will work. You just can't design a financial product against a background of uncertainty. So I think 
the sort of products I'm talking about, kind of actual insurance product, is probably years away. But you could see modifications of existing ones. I mean, Tony will know better than me, but there are existing, you know, whole of life policies with later life care riders or, you know, stuff that comes in if you fail to satisfy tests of daily living and all that kind of stuff. So there's already stuff in this space. You could look at kind of life policies that cut in a bit earlier, all that, all that kind of stuff, incremental changes. But I do think a new, a new type of product is probably needed as well. Yeah, I, I, I do agree. And I do hope that the, um, that the government, if they are talking to insurers, and they say they are, um, actually start broadening those conversations because the reality is there are three parties, especially to a, a long-term care insurance type product. You've got the reinsurers, even you've got also the distributors as well as the insurance company. Now, the reality is that most of the time insurance company is actually just packaging the risk that the, the reinsurers are taking and actually it's the distributors who are actually giving advice on those products and what and because of what steve said in terms of the lead-in time and actually it takes a lot of money to develop products life companies are not going to actually start spending lots of money unless they can be absolutely sure that people are going to buy them so quite often it's 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 much better if if, if the government could talk to not only all three parties but understand that it takes someone a significant distributor to say to a product provider, if you actually devise a product like this, then we will sell it. And that gives the people a great deal more comfort that actually they're not going to be just spending money and, and, and not actually being able to sell the product. And just briefly, I think the one big advantage of having the private insurance market involved, because clearly they're not going to be the whole solution, is if you think about vitality and health and Fitbits and all that kind of stuff, the whole prevention agenda is just absent in social care pretty much. So what happens is someone lives on their own, they have a fall, they have another fall, they deteriorate, they get rushed into A&E, they pick up an infection in hospital, there's no social care package for when they come out, they end up in residential care. You know, the whole thing escalates and costs them and society a fortune. Whereas if I'm an insurer and I'm at risk of catastrophic care costs that I've now on the hook for, I will look after the individual with the policy. I will make sure that they get a grab rail at home the first time they fall. I'll put a video screen in if they want one so that they can just call if that were, you know, you will do preventative stuff, which which from a social point of view makes massive sense. It's better for the individual. It's better for the insurance company. It's better for the taxpayer. And actually, that again is, is, a, is a point well made. And we've already seen that in the income protection market. You know, income protection, you know, when someone makes a claim, that's, that's, that's a significant expense for, for the life company. And there is now a whole plethora of things that life companies do to actually help people back to work. Now, OK, that's good for the individual. But let's be clear, it's good for the life company because they're not now playing a claim. And I can absolutely see the same thing happen if we do have the development of a, of a long term care insurance contract, uh, a care contract. Sean, you were talking about, you know, this kind of timescale being quite tight I mean I guess Tony you were mentioning a bit earlier there's not enough specialist advisors in this area right now so I'm guessing we're not going to see you know an absolute kind of onslaught of these in the next two years so is no more time needed you know to get advisors up to speed with this as well but I, um, I think it is it is we need more time to get advisors up to speed but I think I'm a, I'm a huge um, fan of signposting um, for all sorts of aspects of financial services. Um, and at, at SJP, we took the, um, the decision to, to do that in this space as well. So there are, there are 
there are two very clear areas of advice that's required um, in the care market. Um, and the health and social care paper actually sort of referred to this. There's a non-regulatory element to social care. Right? The social care system right now is, we know, in crisis, but it's very difficult for people to navigate the social care system. Right? There, is, there is nowhere to go for people to get advice at a very emotional time for them. It's very difficult to know, you know who to go to to get an assessment, whether that's medical or financial, where to go to work out the best type of care for them, the best type of provider. And all that non-regulatory advice realistically has to come first before an individual, an advisor, can actually safely provide someone with an idea of how, how they may best effectively pay for care and also deal with the transfer of assets to the next generation, which um, a lot of elderly people are really keen to, to do. So what we've done is we've separated those two and our advisors actually effectively signpost um, a, a third party, in, in our case, a company called CareSourcer, and they provide all of that non-regulatory advice to help people effectively navigate the social care system and get the care that they need that best suits them um, so that our advisors can come in and do the, and do the right financial advice. Now, doing it that way, um, it's easier for people to actually come into and give financial advice because they don't have to deal with all those other issues that, frankly, most advisors are not experienced or trained for. Sure. Do you have anything to add here, Steve? Well, I do think the whole area of later life advice is only going to expand, isn't it? I mean, I'm a great fan of, of SOLA, the Society of Later Life Advisors, and this whole focus on, you know, if we are moving into a world where we routinely live into our late 80s, early 90s and beyond, you've got to think about care and inheritance and property and pensions and all the rest of it in an integrated and holistic way, um, you know. And I think, you know, an advisor who says, well, I'm a pensions advisor, isn't going to be doing the job properly, frankly, for for people. And, and I think pension freedoms comes into this as well, because instead of taking either, you know, at retirement, you used to have a DB pot, uh, sorry, a DB pension fixed, guaranteed, all the rest of it, just, just take it as an income, or a DC pot, which for most people turned into an annuity. So there was no choices to be made halfway through retirement at 70, 75, 80. But in a world of pension freedoms, where you've got a drawdown pot that you're steadily taking for decades, actually thinking about the communication and contact you have with older people, you know, how do I advise an 83-year-old about managing a portfolio? What are the choices? What's the language I use? What's the technology I use? You know, it feels to me this is a massively underdeveloped area and, and, and care products will only add to the need for people to think differently about what you might loosely call the old elderly. And do you think that now that we've kind of got some sort of, you know, policy and announcement that advisors might feel, you know, more ready to advise in this area because I know when I've spoken to advisors in the past they've been like well, we know something's coming but we don't know what so we're kind of a bit you know what do we do <laughs> sort of thing and, and I suppose there's a distinction between the advice you give to someone what you might loosely call at the start of their care journey so there's you know, you run up an 86,000 bill over a period of years but you need to think about the at retirement advice and retirement in quotes as it were but you know just at the point someone's got a pension lump sum is that the moment to grab their attention because that might be the point where they have a bit of lump sum capital they could use for a policy if you leave it until they start the care journey at 83 
nobody's going to insure them. I mean, I know there are products for when you walk through the door of a care home, but they're very, very limited. But but it's always been the challenge, I think, with care is is getting people to engage when they're not ill, when they don't have care needs, about something that they hope will never happen to them, that they don't want to think about and might be 20 years away. And this at last, I think, by ta- I always think you should talk about inheritance insurance, not care insurance. Because people do care, as Tony said, they do care about passing on the value of the family home. So rather than trying to get them to think of themselves when bluntly they can't take themselves to the toilet anymore, which is horrible. Who wants to think about that? Get them to think about a guarantee you can buy now that your family home, bar the price of the premium, will go to your kids. And then I think you'll get a hearing. And I think I would add to that is it's it's really essential that we understand that any form of, of long-term care insurance policy that we develop isn't for the people at point of need. Yeah. That, that's, that's too late. If at point of need, you're looking at immediate needs annuity or finding some other way of making their capital work in such a way that they can pay the care fees and leave something for the, the next generation. What long-term care insurance is about is the next generation. I think it was Jeremy Hunt who actually said, you know, it's really important that we don't actually forget the next generation that are coming up behind. Because if we do then actually we're going to just be in an even bigger mess in 10, 20 years' time. So that's what those policies are for. Sure. And do you think, you know, this is it? Is this where we're going to stop with the reform? Or are we still going to continue to push for bigger and better things? Well, we think we, we need a we need a more detail on actually how the cap is going to work in practice and how they're going to separate between hotel costs and sub- substantial living costs. So there's a lot more detail to come. And I think that's when insurers might be in a better position to work out if they actually can develop products. Um, and, 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 the, and the whole market will develop. I'm sure we will see really imaginative products being developed, um, but it will take everybody working together, the, the distributors, um, the life companies, the reinsurers, um, and all sorts of other sort of key stakeholders as well. And I think my, my worry, Amy, would be it's called a health and social care levy. And whenever you put those two in a single bucket, the health magnet draws all the money out. And we know in the first few years, this is all going to be on the health service. It's cutting waiting lists after COVID and all of that, not least because most of this care stuff won't be set up for years. You know, we'll have to pay the admin and bureaucracy of setting the thing up. But the actual cash is overwhelmingly going to be NHS for the first two or three years. Once the NHS has got used to spending that money, it's going to be incredibly difficult to get it off them. So, you know, the worry is actually the social care will once again be the Cinderella. It's a cliche, but it's a true cliche. You know, it is the afterthought. And the worry then, I think, is that if the money isn't there to pay for all of this, what they'll do is they'll ration and they'll ration by need. And they'll set the threshold for local authority support so high that lots of people won't even meet it. So they'll be spending money on care and the council will say, no, you, you don't need to. So we won't cover it. So I think, you know, that's my big worry, actually, is this ends up being fundamentally about tax for the health service and not against tax for the health service. But in terms of what the social care system needs, it needs protection from the sort of the ravaging magnet of the health service. It it, it might make this not a very particularly interesting debate, but I entirely agree with everything that that Steve said on that one. Um, And the uh, the, I think the difficulty is that if we... If we look at our experience in other countries, um, I'm going to take two countries that have supposedly solved the the social care problem, and by the way, they haven't, Germany and Japan. You know, they started 20, 25 years ago. 
Um, and the reality is they've both of them have had to twice revise their predictions and they've ended up much, much greater costs. So I think Steve's right. The reality is the NHS, we're used to spending the money um, and social care will be a Cinderella. And the reality is we'll almost certainly find that 1.2%, 2.5% levy increasing in order to pay now for social care that we thought we'd done back in 2021. So I think we'll see further increases because we'll need to pay for it. Sure. Well, Steve, Tony, thank you so much for joining us. Tune in next week where we will discuss other goings on in the industry. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.